My name is Will Walker. It's good to be with you guys today. I am one of the pastors at Providence Church, just meets down the road from here. Uh, We planted Providence 12 years ago, and from day one, the Austin Stone has been a source of encouragement and support and help, and we've been so grateful. Kevin Peck was on our advisory board when we first started, kept us from making a lot of dumb mistakes. Uh, Matt did nothing of use except encourage me. Uh, which is what Matt does, so it's helpful. But we have so many friends here, both on staff and just at the various campuses. Uh, We love the Austin Stone. So grateful for your ministry in the city and for you guys. Really fun to be here with you today. I have uh, been reading through the Psalms this year, just taking one Psalm a day, trying to go slow, and, and I'm writing a prayer each day in the mood of that Psalm. It's so hard. Is like making me feel things that I don't normally feel, which is why I'm doing it. I'm, I want to expand my emotional capacity for worship and relationship. Guys, that's a thing. You can do that. Uh, the Psalms for me are like the emotion wheel of the Bible. You guys ever, you guys know what an emotion wheel is? It's this visual tool. It's got like in the center of the wheel, there's these core human emotions, and then you can work out from there and explore various subcategories of emotions. Some of you are like, that sounds fun. Some of you are like, say it one more time. Say emotions one more time. I'm out of here. And we're all over the spectrum on this. Uh, generally speaking, we're not very good at identifying what we feel, much less understanding it or knowing what to do with it. We typically deal with our emotions in one of two ways. So some of you just give full vent to emotions. It's like everything on the table all the time. And some of you want to keep emotions at bay. It's like, if we just sweep as much of this under the rug as we possibly can, it'll be fine. Well, the Psalms teach us a different way to deal with our emotions. In the Psalms, we see we don't just have to vent emotions. We don't have to stuff emotions. We can actually pray through them in the presence of God. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 3. If you're looking at the Psalm in a Bible, it has a little heading. The heading in my my Bible says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And that's the historical context of this psalm. They don't all have that, but this one does. And even if you don't know anything about David, you know right away, this is a pretty intense situation. A dad is on the run from his son. Uh, Most of you know David is a great warrior, was a great warrior. He was the king of Israel, but he had also sinned greatly. And then he tried to cover it up, which only led to more sin. And all of this came to light through the prophet Nathan. Nathan exposed David. And in that scene, Nathan tells David, hey, God is still going to keep his promises to you related to the kingdom, but there are going to be grave consequences for your sin. Uh, Your reputation will be shattered. Your family is going to totally unravel. Your son's going to die. And that's what happened. I mean, it's brutal. The storyline that kind of is most relevant to Psalm 3 is this. One of David's sons, Amnon, fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar, and forced himself on her. Just violated and totally ruined her life. And so Absalom, who's Tamar's full brother, ain't so happy about that with Amnon, and has Amnon killed. And then he has to flee the city because he did that. 
So if you pick up in 2 Samuel 13 and 14, we see Absalom's exile, his return to the city, and then his reconciliation with David. And you're like, this is great. This is like a redemptive end to the story. Except then in the very next chapter, immediately Absalom begins to plot an overthrow of David's throne. When Absalom got a critical mass of followers, he marched on Jerusalem, and given the sheer size of his army, David had no choice but to flee the city. And the text tells us that David left weeping, barefoot, and with his head covered. If you had given David an emotion wheel on that day, he would have picked fear. From there, he might have expanded into words like anxious, overwhelmed, Helpless. These are the primary emotions in Psalm 3. And what we're going to see is that David doesn't downplay them, but nor does he let them take over. He prays through them in the presence of God. That's what we want to learn how to do today. Not just for ourselves, but also for each other. Like, you may not be feeling particularly fearful, anxious, but it's just good to know that somebody on your row is, probably. And so how do we become a community that knows how to pray through our fears together? Psalm 3 tells us. There are three steps in this prayer. One, we bring our fears to God. Second, we give our fears to God. And then lastly, we ask God to act on our behalf. So let's look at the first thing. We bring our fears to God. Verse one, read it with me. Oh Lord, How many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So when I say we bring our fears to God, I I just mean that we talk to God about what's happening in our lives and how we feel about it. Some of you are like, doesn't God already know that? Yeah, yeah, God knows all of it. But God often asks people in the Bible questions that he knows the answers to, like, Adam, where are you? What have you done? God knows the answers to these questions, but he's pursuing relational depth with Adam. The reason that David would spend so much time in the Psalms just telling God what's going on in his life, and the reason we would bring our fears to God is because God uses this process to draw us near to himself. So David's situation is he's on the run from Absalom's army and he's outnumbered. I mean, many, 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 you saw it in the verse. And so he brings this to God. Lord, many are my foes, many are rising against me. He's he's overwhelmed just by the sheer number of people who have turned on him and who are now coming after him. It's too much. This This is the basic level of fear. It has to do with physical threats. So things like safety, health, life itself, like danger and death. That's what's going on here. David is afraid for his life. There's another kind of fear here, though. Look at verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. So notice here that the threat is not physical, right? It's what they're saying. It's like an emotional, psychological, spiritual threat. And what are they saying? There's no salvation for him in God. 
In other words, God is through with David. They're telling the people like, hey, you remember King Saul? Remember what happened to him? He sinned and God abandoned him. That's what's gonna happen to David. David, I mean, look what he's done. Look what he's done. He's not fit to be our king. They're talking about his past sins and failures. And while David knows that that stuff is true, I think he also knows that it's not entirely true what they're saying. God's not finished with him. Nevertheless, these accusations, they just get in his head. They stir up anxiety in his body. And this is one of the ways, maybe the main way, that our enemy attacks us today. To attack God's people, Satan likes to accuse and remind, condemn us for past sins and failures. And even if we know that God has forgiven us, even if we know as far as the east is from the west, so far has removed our iniquity from us. I mean, David knew that. David wrote that. Even if we know that, the accusations still get in our head and mess with us. There's this lingering shame that can come over us that creates this really vague sense that something bad is going to happen to us and we probably deserve it. That is a form of anxiety. And so let me just ask you, where does the memory of past sin take you? Down into shame and anxiety or to the cross? Up to the Father's love where there's forgiveness and healing. Another way to come at it is to ask this question. What in your life are you afraid of people knowing about you or thinking about you? That can be a source of anxiety. So this is the first step. We're just looking at our lives. We're seeing what's happening there. We're bringing it to God. We're not venting to God. That's different. We're bringing it and then we're giving it to him. What does that look like? Well, let's look at verse three. But you, O Lord, if you're reading through the Psalms, almost every Psalm has this turn. It's almost always this phrase, but you, O Lord. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. This is what takes complaining and venting and turns it into prayer, but you, O Lord. I have these fears. I have these enemies. I have this crisis. I have this anxiety. But you, O Lord. To give our fears to God is just to entrust them to him because we know that he'll hear us and help us. Peter says, cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Let's look at how David does this. He uses three images to describe his trust in God. The first one is a shield. Many are rising against me, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. This is not a shield that you would strap on your arm. This is a shield that wraps around his whole body. He's saying that the threats are coming from anywhere and everywhere, but God is a shield about me. He protects me on every side. 
And part of the request here for sure is that God would spare David's life, that he would like physically live. But the most important thing to David is his relationship with God. That's what he wants to be most protected. If you look at Psalm 27, for example, he says, armies are encamped against me, but there's one thing that I ask. Like if I had armies encamped against me, my one request would be like, please kill these armies. But he's like, but there's only one thing I want, and that is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. With armies encamped around him, he just wants to be with God. That's the thing that is most important to him. That's what he wants God to protect. And so it's like he's saying, God, you are a shield about me. Even if I die, my relationship with you is secure because you guard me. The second image is glory. Many are saying, God is through with David, but you, O Lord, are my glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It's just a fun word to say. It means heavy. And when we use it in talking about people, we're we're talking about just their presence, their weightiness. It, It points to their significance and importance. David had had a lot of kavod. He was a legendary warrior. He was a king. He was a father. But now all that glory has gone away. It's all fallen apart. It's all been stripped from him. And like, who is David now? We all locate our glory in various things. Kids and their success and achievement. Work, our own success and achievement and approval of others. We locate glory and security. We locate glory and power and status, all those things. And those things aren't bad, they're fine. But they can all fall apart. And when you put your life into something that can fall apart, then those good things become a constant source of pressure. The fear of failure inevitably will just stir up all kinds of anxiety in your life. Failure is painful, I know that. I've done plenty of failing in my life. But listen, it's also a gift. Failure is one of the unique things that can bring us to the place where we say, Lord, okay, I've got nothing to show. But you are my glory. The last image is an extension of God being our glory. He's the lifter of my head. When someone lifts your head, it's because they're trying to instill confidence in you. They're they're saying, I see you, I believe in you, I'm proud of you. David is saying, God lifts my head. When David left Jerusalem, remember he left in shame. His head hung down. But now, Turning his attention to God, he says, you're the lifter of my head. When I read this verse, uh, the first thing I thought of, this will tell you all you need to know about me. I, the first thing I thought of was Friday Night Lights, the movie, not the TV show. So like 2004 is what we're talking about here. If you haven't seen Friday Night Lights, welcome to Texas. Go watch that immediately. And I'm going to spoil it for you, but you should, still, you should still do that. Friday Night Lights is a film or a story that follows a high school football team in Odessa, Texas in the late 80s. And for those people at that time and probably still now, there's no greater glory than a Texas high school football championship. And so this just follows the story of that team through a season. 
One of the storylines in the movie is between uh, one of the players, Don Billingsley, and his dad, Charlie. Charlie had won a state championship in his day, and he was real proud of it. He had this giant ring, state championship ring that he, he let you know about. Right? It was a constant symbol of his glory days. So Charlie had put a lot of pressure on Don, uh, not a good relationship, but they had football in common. So the last scene in the movie is the last play of the game in the state championship. Odessa's behind, but they got a chance to win if they score. The quarterback, Mitchell, if you want to know his name, takes a snap and he, back, he drops back and it's chaos and he is evading would-be tacklers. And then all of a sudden, everything's slow motion, explosions in the sky, kicks on the soundtrack and he just takes off for the end zone and it's glorious. He's run, I mean, there's blood on his jersey, sweat is flying everywhere. It's heroic. And right as he gets toward the end zone, there's this massive pile of people and struggle. And you're like, yes. And then Mitchell goes down on the one. Game over. The camera pans to the coaches and the parents and it's just shock and disillusionment. Pants back to the players on the field. They're just sprawled out on the ground. Don is laying face down in the end zone and just the agony of defeat. The next scene, Don is walking off the field, his head hung down into his chest, and Charlie, his dad, comes down out of the stands and onto the field. And like, who knows what Charlie's going to do? He's an unstable person. I think he might just hit him. I don't know. But he doesn't. He walks up and he grabs him and he hugs him. And he talks into his ear hole in the helmet, says something to him, backs up, grabs his face, lifts his head, looks him right in the eye. And he takes his ring off his finger and he puts it on Don's finger. As if to say, this is how I see you. You're my son. My glory is your glory. So good. <laughs> I watched it three times this morning. It's <laughs> like stirring up. I'm getting my emotion without, what am I feeling? I don't know. Listen, this is what God does for us in Christ. He comes to us and he lifts our head. He says, you're my son. You're my daughter. All that I have, I give to you. My glory is your glory. Now, how does David know that God will be these things? That God will really be his shield? his glory, that God will lift his head. How does he know he's going to do that? Well, what he does is he thinks back. He remembers past experiences that he's had with God, and then he transfers that confidence into this situation that he's in now. So look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4, the first thing he does is he talks about a time when God answered his prayer. Represents probably many times God answers his prayer. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Uh, God's holy hill is Mount Zion. It's another way of talking about Jerusalem. This is where the tabernacle was. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the place that you went to to meet with God, make sacrifices for sin. David loved this place. In Psalm 63, he says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. 
In Psalm 84, he said, one day in that place is better than, man, like a thousand days anywhere else. And so David remembers being in the presence of God and it gives him confidence now in this moment that God is with him. Mount Zion is also where David's throne was. So like in Psalm 2, the nations rage, but God says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so David also remembers the promises of God to give him an everlasting kingdom. And it assures him now that God is with him. That he still has plans for him. David has been exiled from Jerusalem, but this is what he knows. My life might be falling apart. This might be a dark night, but God is on his throne. His kingdom cannot be shaken. His promises will be yes and amen in Christ. His love is steadfast. We have a much greater assurance than David. David looked at a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling for God. We look to Jesus in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. John said, God became flesh in the person of Christ and he dwelt among us. The word is he tabernacled with us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And we receive from his fullness, grace upon grace. See, on the greater holy hill, Jesus cried out and it totally looked like his enemies were too many. Like his defeat was certain. But God answered him. On the third day, he lifted his head by raising him from the dead. Exalting him, seating him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but in the age to come forever and ever. That's our confidence. Jesus, King Jesus is on his throne. His promises are sure. His love is steadfast. His kingdom cannot be shaken. That's what we know today. The second memory David goes back to is in verse five. He says, I lay down and slept and I woke up again for the Lord sustained me. I love this. Do you know when you go to sleep, that's an act of faith? It's a letting go of control. Like when I go to sleep, it means I'm letting go of my fear, trusting that God will be a shield about me. I don't have to protect myself. When we go to sleep, we're letting go of our work. We don't have to stay up late and get up early and burn ourselves out trying to make a name for ourselves because God is our glory. And every time you wake up, it's a celebration of God's faithfulness. He's the one that has sustained you. David is literally thinking back to all of the nights, even in the hard nights where he just went to bed and woke up. And he's saying, yep, God sustains me. So even here, now, verse six, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I mean, just think about the craziness in your own life. It's not that crazy, but just think about it. And just how great it would be to say like, you know what? My life is in God's hands. I'm going to take a nap. 
When you feel anxious, here's a little exercise I do that I just find helpful. Uh, I didn't run this by the counseling center at all. So double check with them. But I find that anxiety and fear, when it's just up in your head, it's really hard to sort out. It, it multiplies. It's bigger than you think it is. It's hard to even kind of clarify what's going on. And so I just sit down and write a list of all the things that I'm just feeling anxious about. Right? So if you write a little list, say you get 10 things. And I start to ask questions about those things. Like, what on this list is even real? Some of this stuff's not real. I made it up in my head. It's like projected fear. It's not real. And you give those things to God, and God's like, yeah, cross that stuff out. So you cross out a few things. Then I ask, okay, what on this list am I feeling just because of my own shame? Just the lingering accusations that I feel about past sins. I give that to God, and God says, yeah, no, I forgive that. We remove that as far as the east and west, man. Let's, let's cross those things out. And then I look at the list and I say, okay, what's on here that I just need to do? Like, listen, some of your anxiety is because you've been procrastinating stuff that you need to do. That's on you. All right, so you just put a little check box next to that. I'll do that later. All right? <laughs> and then, now you've got a few things left. A few things that are real. And you know what they all have in common? They're all completely out of your control. And so you give those things to God. You start applying what you know about God and his son and the truth of the gospel to each of those things until they are quenched. God, I'm anxious about money, but here's what I know about you. You're generous and you provide for your children. God, I'm anxious about relationships, but here's what I know about you. You died to reconcile people to one another. And the gospel can do that. I'm anxious about my health, but here's what I know about you. You're a shield about me. I mean, even if I die, death has been swallowed up in victory, so that's good. God, I'm anxious about work, but here's what I know about you. You have prepared good works for me to walk in for your glory and just on and on. Paul says, when we do this, when we give our fear and anxiety to God in this way, applying the truth of the gospel to them, he gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding and Christ Jesus guards our heart. This is what it means to give our fears to God. It's active, it's faith, it's trust. Now, if you have a lot of anxiety, I know what that feels like, and I know that there's this temptation to hold on to that stuff. You don't want to give it away. It's like become part of who you are, and it would feel weird to give it away now. And I'm just telling you, that's a burdensome way to live. And Jesus has invited you to give him all of your burdens, and he'll give you rest for your soul. That sounds good. All right, David brings his fears to God. He gives them to God. This doesn't mean he no longer feels what he feels or wants what he wants. It just means he's not letting his emotions get in the driver's seat. That's where God belongs. So that's the, that's the last step. We ask God to act on our behalf. Look at verse seven. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. That's pretty intense language, right? But when you encounter enemies, when you see the destruction and deception of sin in the world, you should get a little angry. You should feel fed up with that. You should want God to do something about that. That's where David is. He's in the fight. But this is how we fight our enemies. It's not by taking matters into our own hands. It's by asking God to act on our behalf. Arise, O Lord. It's the image of a king getting up off his throne and going out to see what's going on with the shouts of the city. David is saying, get up, God. Come and see what's happening to us and save us. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. All right, these are metaphors. God doesn't have hands. He's not making fists, not throwing blows with anybody. All right, so what's he saying? A strike on the jaw is like a slap in the face. It's, it's a gesture of humiliation. Bring shame upon the wicked, Lord. Breaking teeth is probably a metaphor of disempowering Animals, like the strength of an animal is their teeth, and if you crush their teeth, then they don't, they don't have any power, any strength left. This is an emotional plea for justice. A couple weeks ago, we had a prayer gathering at our church, and we were praying for Ukraine and Uvalde and a number of other things, and these words just came out of my mouth. Lord, break the teeth of the wicked. I'd never prayed that before. It felt pretty good. It's not vindictive. It's a cry for justice. Lord, stop the wicked in their tracks. Render them powerless. Please help those who cannot help themselves, which is all of us. Verse eight punctuates the request. Like if if help's gonna come, it's not from us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And now we've come through the full cycle of praying through our fears. Fear makes us very self-focused, turns us inward. That's okay. That's not where we should stay. As we pray through our fears, John says that the love of God drives out that fear and frees us up to love one another. And that is what Jesus did for us. Jesus had intense anxiety about the cross. He was sweating blood, which is a condition that can happen when you have intense anxiety. So what did he do? He went off to pray. He brought his fears to God. Lord, Father, remove this cup from me if possible. And then he gave his fear to God. Not not what I will, but what you will. And then he set his love on us and went to the cross. For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We can ask God to act on our behalf with full confidence because he's already done so in Christ. Jesus took upon himself the curse of sin so that God's blessing could be upon his people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
your blessing be on your people. I'd like to end today with something uh, practical. I want to show you that you can pray through your fears in like three minutes, because that's what we're about to do. And so I'm just gonna ask three simple questions. I'm gonna have you kind of pray silently where you are and reflect. Try to answer and pray through these questions just where we sit and see if God can meet us in this moment. Let's pray together. In what ways do you feel afraid, overwhelmed, or anxious? Just tell God about those things. Now, give them to him. Like, what do you know about God that gives you confidence to trust him with those things? What do you want God to do? Ask him to act on your behalf. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that you are on your throne and that you have invited us to come boldly to the throne of grace where we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so we ask humbly, Lord, would you meet us here and give us mercy and grace? Would you fill our hearts with adoration for Christ love for his work on the cross? Would you fill our bodies with strength and courage to do your will? Would you fill our minds with the truth of your word that we might put out every accusation of the enemy today? We love you. We're so grateful that you have lifted our heads this morning, that we might exult and worship your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.